Isaiah 35, verse 2 says, They shall see the glory of the Lord. Amen? The majesty of our God. He will strengthen weak knees and make firm, strengthen weak hands and make firm feeble knees. Say to those who are anxious of heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Amen? Then, when he comes and saves you, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Amen. Matthew 11, just a couple of verses there. Verse 2, Matthew 11, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we are here together on, on this, this third week of Advent, anticipating the arrival and the birth of Christ that we get to look into your scriptures and see where Jesus, the baby born in a manger, fulfilled every single one of the promises that you've given us in your scripture. We thank you for that. Lord, help us to see this morning that, that the Jesus that we're here to worship fulfills every single thing that we could ever desire, ever need, and ever expect. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. I'm going to go ahead and say something because I want to get this out of the way. Katie has, has let me know that I say the word fulfilled weird. She says I leave out that first L and I say fulfilled instead of fulfilled. And so I have been self-conscious for two weeks now because she told me that. And when I get talking really fast, I say it weird. And so I just need you guys to have grace for me, all right? Don't think, who is this idiot up here who can't even talk right, all right? But it has bothered me so much, and she's been like, Seth, you need to practice and get it right. But I just say it weird and just ignore it, okay? All right? I'll tr I'm trying to learn it, all right? I don't know why I say it that way. I just get talking fast and I mess it up. Anyway, we'll get past that. So the scripture this morning, back to focus, bring it back, all right? An important component of the Christmas story that, uh, maybe we don't often mention, is the narrative of the birth of a man named John the Baptist. If you look in the scriptures and you read the nativity story, the story of the birth of Jesus, especially in Luke's gospel, when you read in Luke chapter 1, 2, and 3, you'll realize that you think you're reading about the birth of Jesus, but really the story is about the birth of two babies. And the, the story that's spent a, quite a bit of time in the scripture being described is the story of the birth of a baby boy named John. And John was actually the cousin of Jesus on his mother's side. They were related by, by their mothers. Their mothers were both cousins. Mary uh, was, was Jesus' mother, and, and Elizabeth was John's mother. They were related by blood, and both, the Bible says, learned around the same time that they were miraculously expecting a child. 
Mary, of course, was the, was experiencing a, a she she ha- wasn't able to have children because she was a virgin. She wasn't old enough. She hadn't had the experience she needed to in, in order to become pregnant. It was a miracle that the Holy Spirit conceived a child in her. And Elizabeth, the Bible says, was too old. She was past the age. Her, her womb had been closed. She had not had a, a, a fruitful life with her husband where she was able to have children. And then an angel appeared to her, and there was this miracle where she became pregnant as well. And so the story kind of goes... Uh, a parallel of the story of the birth of John and the story of the birth of Jesus. And in Luke's gospel, after Mary sees the angel and the angel tells her that she's going to miraculously become the mother of the Son of God, Mary, the Bible says, goes to visit her older cousin Elizabeth to tell her the good news that God's spoken to me and I'm going to have a child. And Elizabeth, when she gets there, Mary finds out that Elizabeth is already pregnant with her son. And the Bible even says that when the baby in Elizabeth's womb hears the good news of the birth, of the coming Savior through Mary, the Bible says that John, the 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 what the world calls the fetus, but the baby, that live baby, that real baby that was in Elizabeth's womb, jumped for joy when, she, when he heard the news that Mary was expecting to give birth to the Son of God. And this baby, John, the Bible says, had a specific purpose and calling from God even before he was born. Angels spoke of John to his father and mother and said, he will be great before the Lord. How'd you like to say that about an angel to say that about you, that you're great before the Lord? That'd be pretty cool, huh? They said, he will turn many of the children of Israel back to the Lord their God to make ready for the Lord a people who are prepared. And the scripture says that John grew up and lived a fruitful life of a a prophetic ministry. Luke says that the hand of the Lord was on John in everything that he did. And John's father, who was a temple priest named Zechariah, he prophesied over his son and he said, You will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And the scripture says that John spent most of his life out in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey. He was kind of a weird guy. He was a little bit different. He was he didn't fit in with the crowd, but he spent time out in the wilderness uh, being taught by the Spirit, uh, maturing spiritually, uh, being discipled by the Spirit of God, spending time in communion with God, studying the Scriptures. But then when he was around 30 years old, John received a word from God that it was time to begin this public ministry and it was time to begin preaching that the kingdom of God was near, was nearer than it had ever been before. So God instructed John to begin calling people to repentance, calling people to repent of their sins and turn back to God, be baptized in water and prepare themselves for the day when the kingdom of God would arrive. That was his mission. Call people back to God away from their sin and be prepared because the kingdom of God is very, very near. So on the edge of the wilderness, the banks of the river Jordan, John began to preach and call people to this baptism of repentance. Now, John was not an all smiles, cotton candy, easy peasy, pie in the sky kind of preacher. He was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. He warned people of the destruction of their sin if they didn't repent. He preached a strong message. He was even known for calling people out by name for their sin. How many of you like if I started doing that every week? Like, <laughs> Yeah. 
But he did all this under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And even though it was a strong message, it was a message of love and compassion for people, calling them to peace, calling them to treat their fellow human beings with dignity, uh, calling tax collectors who were taking advantage of people to uh, repentance, to, to treat people with kindness. And this kind of ministry it was a strong, heavy, very prophetic ministry, but it was effective. Hundreds of people flocked to hear this wild-eyed preacher preach about the kingdom of God and be baptized in the River Jordan. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 3 that the worst of sinners and tax collectors came to John and repented of their sin, and they were baptized. They wanted to be ready for when the kingdom of God finally arrived. In fact, John was drawing so much attention that some people began to believe that he was the Savior, that he was the Messiah. But we know from the Scripture that John, even though people thought he might be the Messiah, he was constantly pointing people toward the one who was to come. He, his, his message, his, his life motto was, I must decrease so that the Messiah can increase. He was wanting to be back in the shadows to put the Messiah center stage. He preached about one who was coming soon, who would not just baptize with water in the Jordan River, but who would baptize with the Holy Ghost and fire. And so when Jesus, his cousin, began his public ministry, the first thing that Jesus did was he went to a revival meeting out on the edge of town on the banks of the Jordan River where his cousin John was preaching. And he went to that revival meeting and he said, John, I want you to baptize me so that it might fulfill all righteousness, that, that I can fulfill everything that has been spoken about me. I need you to baptize me in water. And even after Jesus began preaching and calling disciples to follow him, John continued his ministry of preaching that the kingdom of God was here and that the Messiah had arrived. And so they had sort of this tag team preaching kind of ministry going on. They both were active in ministry. They both had disciples. They both had followings. John is calling disciples to follow him, and Jesus is calling disciples to follow him. And sometimes after people started following John and hearing his preaching, then they go and find Jesus because John had pointed them to Jesus, and they'd become disciples of Jesus. And John preached the law and consequences of sin and repentance and the coming of kingdom. And Jesus preached uh, peace and the coming of the kingdom and turn the other cheek and take up your cross and follow me. And they had this kind of cool parallel ministry going on. And people knew who they were. They had attracted large followings as they played off each other's ministry, as they shared disciples, as maybe they even shared sermon notes. And they kind of, they kind of did this thing together, talking about the kingdom arriving. And they had drawn lots of attention, lots of positive attention, lots of people following them, but they also drew more than just positive attention. In fact, both of these men were hated by religious and political leaders. And John was hated because he was known, remember, for calling out sins by name. And one particular incident, John was known to have publicly, publicly spoken out against King Herod for an affair the king had had with his own sister-in-law. This is in your Bible. John publicly accused and called to repentance the king, the appointed king by the Roman emperor, of an affair with his sister-in-law. And this, this got him in some hot water. He started talking publicly about the sins of the king. The king didn't like that. The king had him arrested and thrown in prison. And eventually, 
John was executed by King Herod for preaching against the sin of the king and preaching about the coming of a new kingdom. See, kings don't like it when you start talking about a new kingdom. But just before John is beheaded, just before he's executed and dying as a martyr, he begins to realize he doesn't have much time left on earth. And so he, he sends a few of his followers, a few of his disciples, to go find Jesus. And when they go to find Jesus, they ask him. They say, hey, John sent us, your cousin John, he's in prison and he knows his days are short. And he sent us to ask you, are you really the one? Is now really the time? Are you really the Messiah that John's been preaching about all these years? I don't know why he sent them to ask this question. Maybe the loneliness of prison had caused him to have a little doubt, or maybe he just wanted to be sure that he wasn't going to die with his life's work in vain. Whatever the reason was that he sent them to ask this question, he wanted to be sure that he had fulfilled his life, mission, and calling, that Jesus really was the one that he had been preparing for all these years. So when John's disciples go and find Jesus, to ask him if he's really the Messiah, is now the time? Are you the one we've been expecting and waiting for? John, Jesus doesn't just say, yes, I am, or no, I'm not. This is how Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 11. They ask him, are you the one that we've been waiting for? And Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now remember, John had spent decades in the wilderness studying the Scripture. And back then, the only Bible they had was the Old Testament. And since John's life message was to preach about a coming Messiah, he would have known the book of Isaiah backwards and forwards. Isaiah is the book in the Old Testament that most prophesies about the coming Messiah. And so if his life mission was to preach about the coming Messiah, he had a Ph.D. in Isaiah. He knew the book of Isaiah. And so when John's disciples came back and said, John, we found Jesus, and we asked him the question, and this is how he responded. He said, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the dead are raised, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, good news is preached to the poor. John knew exactly what Jesus was saying. John immediately knew it sounded familiar. He remembered his time in the wilderness, reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah had prophesied about the age of the coming Messiah, that when Messiah comes, he would bring with him a new age of signs, wonders, and miracles. Remember, we read it first, Isaiah 35, 5. The eyes of the deaf will be open. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing. So when John says, go and tell John what you're seeing and hearing in my ministry, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking, the dead are raised. John, Jesus is saying, John, do you remember Isaiah 35? Do you remember reading that scripture? And the Isaiah saying that when this happens, that means the Messiah has come. Jesus is sending John a message. He's saying, I am the one who came to fulfill the scriptures. I am the one that Isaiah wrote about. I'm the one you've been reading about in the wilderness so many years. I'm the one you've been preaching about and telling people to look for. And here's the proof. Wherever I go, the blind see, the deaf hear, and the lame walk, and the dead are raised. That's the proof that I'm the one you've been looking for. 
And the title of my message today is Christmas Miracles. Christmas miracles, because Christmas is a time of celebrating the coming of a new miraculous age ushered in by the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one anointed and sent by God to rescue his people from sin, sickness, and suffering, that Jesus isn't just sent by God, but that Jesus is God in the flesh who came to dwell among us, and wherever he goes, miracles go with him. Starting on Christmas Day 2,000 years ago, we began a new age, a new era of human history, the age of the Messiah and the age of the miraculous. And even when we number our our calendar, how we count time, A.D., Anno Domini, the, the year of the Lord, we live in the age of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the age of the Messiah is an age of miracles. The age of the Messiah is the age that Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 35 when he said, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead are raised. Christmas means that the miracle worker has come. Jesus is a miracle worker. Jesus is a healer. Everything that Jesus does is involved in healing and the restoration of bodies and the restoration of lives and the miraculous. See, heal is not what, just what Jesus does. Healer is who Jesus is. It's a part of his divine essence. Down to the very core of who he is, healing and miracles are a part of him, are a part of his existence. He is a healer because he is the complete opposite and antithesis to death, sickness, and suffering. He is a healer because he is the giver of life. And the prophets of old spoke of a day when the Messiah would come and bring with him an age of signs, wonders, and miracles. And it's clear in the testimony of Jesus' life found in the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the miraculous was an important part of his ministry. Let me correct that. It wasn't just an important part of his ministry. It was the heart of his ministry. You cannot make a biblical case for separating Jesus' teaching ministry from his healing ministry. They go hand in hand. They work hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. They were inseparable because Jesus did not just perform miracles to impress us so that we would listen to what he had to say. He performed miracles because he was teaching us what God is really like, what the character of God is, what the heart of God is, what the purpose and will of God is. And God is life. God is love. God is perfection. So God will always stand in opposition to anything that diminishes life or hinders abundance. God will always stand against sickness and suffering. He will always be on the side of the one who is sick and suffering. You know, we don't, we don't teach this a whole lot because we're, we're fine teaching about Jesus' mercy and grace to forgive our sins. But we don't teach a lot about Jesus' mercy and grace to heal our sickness or alleviate our suffering. We have believed that Jesus on the cross saved us spiritually, but that salvation doesn't extend to our physical bodies. We have believed a false gospel that tells us that life is meant to be full of suffering and that if you endure to the end, then you will receive your reward in heaven. But that is not the message that Jesus preached. That is not a holistic biblical view of humanity. 
See, Jesus announced that the kingdom had come. And his miraculous healing works were signs of the kingdom, announcing that the kingdom was breaking forth into the world as we know it. And when he said he came to seek and save the lost, he did not just mean he came to save souls for heaven. He meant that he came to save the whole person, the whole person. Not just your soul, not just your spirit. You don't get to separate soul and spirit and say, Jesus cares about this part, but not this part. No, he cares for the whole person, the whole man. He created the whole person. He's interested in the whole person, and he wants to save the whole person. Listen, the blood of Jesus was shed for all of you. All of you all of what you are as an individual, all of what you are as a human being. The blood of Jesus was shed for every part of you, mind, body, soul, and spirit. Not just your sin, not just your soul that's going to leave your body. We've got a false kind of understanding. You've heard the quote that says, you know, you are a soul and you have a body, you know, and that kind of thing, and they're separate and the body isn't really important because you're a soul. That's not Bible. That's Greek philosophy that's made its way into Christianity. The Bible sees you as a whole person, sees you as a whole entity, that every part of you, the physical, the, ma the material, the spiritual, the emotional, every part of you is one individual, and God is interested in all of it. The blood of Jesus was shed for all of you. That's why Isaiah would prophesy in other places in his scripture, especially Isaiah 53, that the Isaiah would take wounds or the, the Messiah would take wounds on his body so that by his wounds, our bodies might be healed. That's why when the apostle Peter wrote 2 Peter, he quoted Isaiah and said, by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. The Hebrews had a word for this kind of holistic, whole person salvation. It's an ideal that, Jesus, that Jewish people had, had hoped for and desired and aspired to for thousands of years. It's a very important word if you're going to understand the scripture. This word in the Hebrew is shalom. You've heard that word before, shalom, right? Now, most of us, we've heard that word and, and it means peace. That's what we hear that that when you hear shalom, that it, it means peace. And that's true. It's, it's not like you've been told a lie or anything. But if you've ever learned anything or you've ever learned a second language or you've, you've participated in language classes or you even in high school you took a language because you had to or whatever it might be, you've learned that sometimes you come across words that don't have an exact equivalent in the other language. There, you know, there's not an exact translation. Um, there, it's, it's hard to get a word-for-word -word equivalence. One word doesn't exactly equal another word. There, it doesn't go from one language to the next very easily. And this is one of those words. We have no word in English that precisely describes what shalom means. The closest you would probably get to the meaning of shalom is wholeness. W-H-O-L-E, wholeness, meaning complete. But if you really wanted to know what the word meant, you'd have to use more than one word. You might say uh, it means wholeness, peace, tranquility, prosperity, completeness, shalom. It, it, it means everything is right. Everything is as it should be. Everything is complete. Everything is whole. 
And it's a word that applies to your entire life. It applies to your spiritual condition, your emotional predisposition, your relational uh, positions, your physical health, your, your physical security, your physical well-being. It encapsulates your entire life and being. And if I really wanted to stretch your, your theological minds this morning, I would tell you this. Shalom means in Hebrew what salvation means in English. When we say the words get saved or salvation or, or, or become a Christian or, or give your life to the Lord, when we say those kinds of words, the Hebrews would use a word like shalom to say that everything has, has been made right. And, and this isn't just an instant like, like you go to the altar and you punch your ticket and you say your prayer so that you won't go to hell when you die. It's more than that. It's about everything, the process beginning in your life where the pieces are put back together, where the brokenness is repaired, where, and, and it starts at the altar. It starts at that moment where you give your life to the Lord, but it's a, a lifelong process of everything being made right in your life. Are y'all following me? And, and that's what salvation really is. What happens at the altar, that's a prayer. That's an initiation. But salvation is a lifelong journey of the shalom of God being applied and made manifest in your life. Where wholeness and perfection and completeness are taking part, not just in your spiritual state, not just some ethereal thing, but everything that you are, your body, your mind, your emotions, your, your spirit, your soul, your, whatever words you might use to describe parts of your life, God is interested in all of it coming to shalom, coming to wholeness, coming to completeness. So when the Old Testament in Judges 6 calls God, gives God the name Jehovah Shalom, it's saying that God is the God of shalom. It's saying that God who cares for the whole man brings peace to the whole person, brings wholeness to the whole person, brings completeness to every part of your being. And in Isaiah 9, when Isaiah prophesies about the coming Messiah, he says he gives the Messiah a few names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, and what? Prince of peace. Guess what the Hebrew word is? Shalom. The prince of shalom. He's the chief. He's the captain. He's the prince of whole person salvation of making men and women whole in their minds, in their spirits, and in their bodies. He is the ruler. He's the prince over making mankind complete where sin and sickness have corrupted mankind. So Christmas is the arrival of the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom, who, who brings everything right in every aspect of your life. And it's not a one-time thing. So if you say, well, that didn't happen to me. <laughs> I didn't get everything right when I went to the altar. No one did. You started a journey where the shalom of God began to be manifest in your life, where the wholeness, completeness, the, the, the fulfilling God came into your life, and he began a process. 
Christmas is the arrival of a Messiah, the Prince of Shalom. It's the arrival of an age of miracles and healing because he doesn't just want to save your soul. He wants to restore everything about you, including your physical bodies, including your relationships, including your addictions, including your emotional wounds. Whatever it is in your life, God wants to make it right. It's a time where not just your spiritual condition is rectified, but your physical condition can be healed. It's an age of God coming down to earth where he created men, where he, the earth he created to make men whole and bring completeness, peace, and prosperity to those who are sick and suffering. Christmas means shalom has come. Wholeness, completeness, restoration of your whole person, your spirit, your mind, your soul, and your body. Jesus still performs miracles. There's a lot of Christians out there that don't believe that. I have more intellectual respect for someone that just says, I don't believe this book, than someone that says, I believe this book, but I don't believe it can happen today. That doesn't make any sense. If you believe this is true, if you believe this is the word of God, if you believe that Jesus really did heal the blind man, that he really did make the lame walk, if you believe that he did it back then, and you've got some kind of teaching theological system that tells you he doesn't still do that stuff, I don't, I'm sorry, I just, I can't get that. Well, how much sense does that make that Jesus says, I cared about the blind man 2,000 years ago, but I don't care about him now? I cared about the leper and the, the lame man then, but I don't care about it. I care about the widow who lost her dead son, but I don't care about her now. No. Hebrews 13, 9. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hallelujah. He still performs miracles. There's no legitimate biblical or theological case for believing that the Jesus who did miracles in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit that did miracles through the early church, just stopped one day. Jesus' mission is still to bring the shalom of God, whole person salvation, restoration, wholeness of mind, body, and spirit to the world. And the New Testament time and time again instructs us to pray for the sick, expect the miraculous, and believe God for healing. Let's have a quick testimony service. How many in here just brought a show of hands? You say, I have personally, the Lord has touched my body and I've experienced a physical healing in my life. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Okay. How many of you would say, I haven't experienced it myself, but I know someone I trust who says it happened to them and they mean it. Like, I, I, I know that's real. Yeah. For any doubters in the room, there's no way that the 30 people who just raised their hand that were all crazy. <laughs> there's no way. I mean, a couple of them are. <laughs> but we're not all crazy, right? Listen. I have, I have witnessed and experienced Jesus' healing power in, in, in what you might call small ways and in pretty incredible, magnificent ways. This is a gross story, and Katie's going to be embarrassed that I tell it. She knows already what I'm going to say. But I think it's cool. It's gross, though, and so forgive me. A few years ago, probably four or five years ago, you guys, have you ever had planter's warts on your feet? They hurt, right? They're just awful. And I had them, I had like, 10 or 12 on each foot, right on my heel, 
and it hurt so bad. And I would get the stuff, you know, to kind of like freeze them off and different things. Nothing worked. They would like multiply, and it was so bad. And uh, I'd gone to the doctor even, and they tried it, and it just kept coming. And it was, and it was like I was on actually a work trip uh, with Teen Challenge, and it involved a lot of walking. It was actually in Conway, and we were spending the night down there. And I was just in pain constantly. I, I couldn't walk. I mean, it just hurt to walk. And I sat in a hotel room right off the interstate there in Conway, and I just said, Jesus, the, the stuff doesn't work from the store. The, it, they just keep coming back. I need you, I need you to heal my feet. Like, I'm, I'm hurting. Please heal my feet. And I remember I just kind of laid my hands on my own feet, and I just prayed, Jesus, would you heal my feet? And God is my witness. This is gross. <laughs> Those things turned black and fell off into my hand, and I dumped them in the trash can with new, flat, fresh skin underneath and no pain instantly it was incredible I was like there was the, like the boys I was working with and it's like guys guess what just happened like this is incredible I've never had one since then never had it come back and God just healed me uh, he he saw my heart he saw my need and he just he answered my prayer Jesus still heals amen I know that's kind of a gross example and simple but I want you to know he cares about your feet <laughs> he cares about your warts <laughs> He cares about it all. That's a little, maybe in some people's eyes, a little miracle. But back there in that nursery back there, I've got a real, a real amazing miracle. Where doctors told us we couldn't have children and told us you could try the treatments, but even then, maybe it'll work, and, but maybe not. And, you know, that's a lot of money, and we're poor preachers, and we didn't have the money to do it anyway. The physician said it wasn't possible, but the great physician, the Jesus who still does miracles, he did a miracle. And I'll fight anybody in there that do, in here that doesn't say that girl's perfect out there. Jesus does miracles. He cares about every part of your life. He cares about the deep, scars on your heart where people have wounded you and he does miracles he cares about the disease of addiction that traps people into bondage that they can't get out of and while you and I might judge them for their choices and the things that they're doing he doesn't he just says hey I got a prescription for that He cares about cancer and diabetes. He cares about eye cataracts. He cares about broken bones. He cares about skin cancer. He cares about kidney disease. He cares about uh, pain in your feet. He cares about headaches. He cares, he cares about earaches. He cares about colds. He, he cares because he's interested in all of you, not just the you that's going to float away one day, whatever that is. That's not even right biblically but we believe that he cares about every part of who you are and christmas says that the one who cares about every single aspect of your life the one who has numbered every single hair on your head he spent a little more time on y'all than he did mine the one who cares about every single aspect of your life didn't just stay in heaven on a throne somewhere. But he came, and he was born in a manger. 
He grew up as a humble carpenter. But then when he was 30 years old, he went and met his cousin John, took a dip in the Jordan River, and every day after that, he's been doing miracles and healing people, seeing the dead be raised and the lame walk. And whatever is not at shalom in your life right now, physical, relationships, financial, whatever is not at complete wholeness, it's not complete peace, prosperity, and it's not at not just totally as he, it should be, he cares about it.